This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. Professor, we're going to have a really interesting show. We have a guest who you've been on stage with before. We had a little bit of volatility in the markets uh, this week. We had the testimony on Capitol Hill for the GameStop and all that. But, Professor, how are you looking at the markets here? Yeah, well, uh, you know, the game stock, you know, we've talked about that. I mean, it's sort of a, a sideshow, um, really, to what is going on. I mean, the big news of the week was, to me, uh, the unbe- the shocking producer price index numbers that were reported on Wednesday, uh, 1.3% um and 1.2% uh, in the core rate, I, you know, the, the, these were four to five times higher than expectations. I have not seen that since the inflationary 70s and 80s. Uh, now, it's only one month, so we shouldn't, you know, say, oh, my God, we're, we're off to the races. But it indicates the theme that we've been talking about so much here that inflation is going to be on the rise. By the way, we got import prices today, which were up the most in 10 years. Um, again, it's not showing up on the CPI yet. We actually had a quiet CPI reading for the month of uh, January. Um, but this is the sort of preliminary stuff that shows how strong the economy was. By the way, at the exact same time, producer prices were announced. We had absolute blowout uh, numbers for uh, retail sales um, um, for the month uh, of January. So, um, this is also, to me, very indicative of a strong economy. I, I know we did have. Jobless claims a bit a bit above expectations, um, but uh, you know, with the prospect of stimulus checks, Biden administration is still going for that. We don't need them. We don't need 1.9 trillion. But if it's going to be there, it's just going to push everything further in the plus position. Stock market likes it. Um, little pause, yeah, the pause in the market. Uh, what we're really seeing, and we can, we see the 10-year now hitting uh, a high of of 134, which is a you know post-pandemic uh, uh, high, um, and of course this is really helping the financial stocks and the banks uh, in particular because they rely on that margin, and so that uh, is a really has been a very very strong structure. But even value has been very strong. This value has quite outperformed growth um, in the last six months, even, um, and uh, the you know the vaccine and the rollout and um, and we do see the, the the new cases dropping precipitously, and 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 rollouts. Not that there aren't hitches, but the reopening economy, uh, coupled with the strong stimulus bill that Biden still seems to insist on, um, is is really just driving this market forward. Yeah, one of the questions I've been seeing people talk about a lot is is at, is there a level where the interest rates become a headwind? Um, and I know we've you've called for the two percent on the ten year, maybe by the end of the year. Is is it the speed of the rise? I mean, is there anything that would would concern you if if uh, you're looking well, at? The I interest think rates? actually probably. I mean, it's going to have a little margin. Don't forget, there are people who pay their stock bond allocation to this ten year. So automatically, as the ten year goes up, they readjust. Uh, so there's always going to be some pressure on it. But internally, it becomes what's called a political issue. 
that the Fed really says, oh, just a minute here, we got people complaining and I need to do it. I mean, that's going to be much higher. It'll start influencing the market. The market wants to go up even more. I mean, if, if, the, if the tenure was at one instead of one, three, five, you know, we'd be another five to 10 percent higher. So as the economy improves, the tenure will go up to keep the market will go up, but it'll keep it restrained. It's when the Fed says this is too much, which I just don't see anywhere near soon that you'll finally have trouble for the uh, equity market. Let me briefly just bring in our guest. I know he wants to say hello and interact for just a few minutes here. Uh, we have David Carter, who's the Chief Investment Officer for Lennox Wealth Advisors. Professor, I think you were on stage with David at the Cornell Club with Scott Wapner managing a, a panel. Oh, yes. Dave, welcome to Behind the Markets. Uh, thank, thanks so much for the invite. I appreciate it. And Dr. Siegel, it's nice to nice to speak with you again. Nice, you know, nice to see pan- you again. Yeah, I remember talking about that. Yeah, he was, was worried about too much froth back then, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean exactly. So I guess we were both wrong, Dr. Siegel. I'm but... saying I, I'm I'm bringing my mind back. This is way. <laughs> I just always defer to being wrong, right? <laughs> um, if I can ask one, one, one question, if I can, you know, I, I loved yeah, your please. comment a minute ago about uh, you know fiscal spending and, and how big of a program is too big. Seems like there's a couple different camps, right? You know, Yellen and Biden are saying you know sort of go big or go home with fiscal stimulus. You know, you can't be too big. And maybe there's another camp. I don't know, maybe Senator like Mitt Romney or Larry Summers saying, well, wait a minute, you know, we got to pay for this policy and. You know, there might be some negative side effects, like too much inflation, I guess. Is investors, Dr. Siegel, are we kind of rooting for a really big program or, you know, something a little bit smaller? Um, Okay, if if you're just a stock investor, actually you're rooting for a big program. Um, Deflation will come later and hurt the bondholders much more than the stockholders. Um, I mean, it's already hurting the bondholders. You can see the capital losses on the bonds. Um, you know, as I said, I said this is going to be the worst year, one of the worst years ever for Treasury bonds. Going to be the worst investment class. Um, so, I mean, it, 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 stock investors and firms that are levered are going to help. Now, where where it's going to hurt is way down the road um, when the inflation gets to the point where the Fed is going to have to do something about. Um, in the meantime, enjoy it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, the punch bowl is with us. The Fed's not taking it away. So, you know, if you're a stock investor, um, you know, I you know, I could see another twenty percent rise and then the interest rates begin to buy and then you begin to get some action and then you, you, you slow down. But in the meantime, the push is on and um uh I think it's positive. Now, I, I do do believe and then even Yellen has hinted there's going to be a tax. I've said this right away. I mean, um, there's going to be a tax increase this year, no yeah. question. Yeah. So, so in a way, the tax as as the stockholders are going to be celebrating. Hey, only the best things are happening. You're going to have a corporate tax increase, and you're going to have personal tax increases, yeah. and that's going to be, be passed this year yeah. to scoop up some of the extra profits that this stimulus plan is giving. So they're going to they're they're given a lot here. And they're going to take uh, some of it back, but the net effect is still uh, upward. <laughs> I think uh, uh, net on equity. Uh, you know, wouldn't change my allocation uh, to a very on a very full equity position um, uh, anytime soon. Yeah, great, great, great point. If I if I can ask one more, I think you know you, you talk about hey, a big fiscal stimulus program is going to trigger inflation, but. My hunch is, Dr. Siegel, if we were on a panel one years ago, two years ago, or even five years ago, we would have said inflation's coming, inflation's coming. But it just hasn't. So what do you think is different, yeah. you know, in the next one or two years yeah. that will, in fact, let, you know, inflation kind of cut loose yeah. while it hasn't, yeah. you know, in the and past? I, I think this is really this is important because, uh, as I've been saying, what's really different is the fact that the money creation in 2020 – was the highest in 150 years. It was not anywhere near uh, these levels during the financial crisis or in the whole year after the financial crisis. The Fed did bring interest rates to zero and provide a lot of excess reserves. The big difference now, which is something I saw in the middle of last year and pointed out why the boom was coming, was that these monies are now being put into savings accounts, checking accounts, demand deposits, payroll accounts, and it is in accounts waiting to burst out as 
you know, the cases come down, the vaccine becomes effective and people go back to normal. This just did not happen at all before. So I was really never an inflation. I, you know, I dissociated myself with all these inflation hawks back after the financial crisis with easing one, two, three. I said, no, no, it's not going into the account. If it goes into the account, so then I'm going to change my tune. And now it has gone. It's already gone into the accounts with the Biden plan. Even more stimulus is going into the accounts. And I think that is what is so very different today than what we saw 10 years ago. Yeah, interesting. Good point. Thank you. Well, Professor, thank you for helping start the show. Have a, a great weekend. Thank you very much. See you next week. Let me reintroduce our guest. We're talking with David Carter, who's the Chief Investment Officer of Linux Wealth Advisors. Uh, Linux has uh, been a client of Wisdom Trees. David, good to get to know you over time, and thank you for joining us again. Uh, maybe just reflect on um, what you heard from Professor Siegel as you think about how Linux is positioned across you know, your asset allocation. Uh, how, how are you thinking about the markets today? Yeah, great. Well, first of all, Jeremy, thanks for including me. I appreciate being on the show. Um, yeah, boy, was I a little surprised with Dr. Siegel. He certainly seems optimistic, doesn't he, you know, on the equity markets. You know, I think I heard him say, you know, the equity markets could move up, you know, I think he said 20% higher from here. Look, that'd be great. <laughs> we should all be so lucky. I think, you know, our outlook is a little bit more sanguine, you know, I think, you know, as we think about the outlook or maybe said differently, it's, you know, you when we're chatting with clients, they'll often ask, hey, how come the markets are up so much this year? You know, what's going on? And I think it's a couple issues there, right? It's this, it's this, there's this hope or belief that this giant or large fiscal stimulus package will, in fact, support economic growth until, you know, vaccination rate, rates rise to the point where, thank God, we can all go out and spend again. You know, folks can get back to work. We can go out and travel and out to eat. So there'll kind of be this baton passed from fiscal spending to consumer spending. We think that's going to happen. So we certainly have some optimism there. But I think we're somewhat concerned, you know, how much of that is, is A, priced in already. Now, if you look at valuations today, I think um, it, it very much relies on this idea that, you know, vaccination rates will continue to rise sort of undisturbed. And my hunch is there, it's been great to see the progress, but, we, you know, there'll be a hiccup there. I think it's probably reasonable to assume, sure, we'll, we'll meet that, we'll get to that critical level of vaccination rates, but it probably takes a little bit longer than everybody hopes. There'll be a hiccup between now and then. So I think we share most of Dr. Siegel's optimism, but we're a little bit more cautious, you know, given, given how far markets have come this year and especially on the tail end of last year. So I, I, I think you made great points. And look, I hope he's right. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, the, the, we have not confronted this tax rate angle. I guess the question will be like, that, that could be one of the things that triggered the volatility is if you had to say there was one thing that triggers more of a move, um, do you have a, a reason you think the market had a little bit more struggles middle of this week? Is it, was it the rates? Is it uh, w w any, any, what is the catalyst for some of the volatility that you think might be, be coming? Yeah, great point. I think, look, I think Dr. Siegel said it well. I, th I think Jeremy, you asked the question, hey, at what point do higher interest rates start to hurt the equity market? Look, we don't think we're, we're, we're there yet. You know, the, the they look at the U.S. 10-year Treasury, it's around 1.3%. I think most folks say, hey, at around 2% in a 10-year Treasury, you know, that's when, that's when uh, rates will start to hurt the equity market. I think, Jeremy, that might happen a little bit sooner than people think. You know, mm -hmm. Recall, if you look at rates today, if I'm not mistaken, they're still lower than where they were pre-COVID. So we sort of haven't, you know, erased the, the the COVID shock, if you will. So we definitely think there's room room for rates to back up a little bit more. I think number two, you know, it's become somewhat fashionable to to be worried about inflation, right? But the market really is. You know, if you look at some, you know, inflation indicators, say they say the tips spread or the break-even rate, or if you look at inflation forwards, you know, the market is saying, hey, inflation's coming back. You know, and sooner or later, you know, that, that feeds its way into higher rates. So what are we most worried about? Well, certainly it's a stumble in vaccination rates, but, you know, sort of more economically, it's that rates continue to grind higher. And then all of a sudden, hey, you know, a two-year two -year treasury doesn't attend, you know, a 2% treasury doesn't look that bad instead of fixed income. So I, I think that's definitely a risk that's out there and certainly one of the risks we're watching. 
Yeah, if you if you think that rates are moving higher, how does that translate into what you do in portfolios? I mean, it's the traditional. We've talked a lot about the sixty forty is one of the most common allocations. Um, we, you know, Siegel and I've talked about how that. You know, he ta- he keeps talking about Treasuries being the worst asset class in his view this year. So it shifts you towards like the seventy five five type model and and adding commodities and gold. And he became a gold bull for the first time in twenty years. I knew him. What what are what are you what is Lennox doing in, in tr- terms of your traditional portfolios for fixed income yeah, and, a, and these challenges? Yeah, great question. I think, you know, n- number one, you know, we'll move among equities and fixed income. But number two, also sort of within those buckets, we'll start to reshape the bucket for a higher interest rate environment. So, for example, in our, in our fixed income portion of portfolios, we've started to add a lot more floating rate exposure. So sort of investments that can do well even if rates are rising. So think floating rate mortgages, floating rate bank loans, floating rate ABS securities. And as I'm sure you're well aware, Jeremy, you know, there's lots of easy ways to express that view in mutual funds or ETFs. So within our fixed income exposure, you know, we'll shift away from fixed rate bonds and start to increase the exposure to floating rate securities. And really the yields there and some of that floating rate stuff they're pretty good, you know, around 4%. So you, you sort of get paid to wait. So again, I think in that fixed income bond bucket, shift from fixed to floating. And I think on the equity side, you know, you want to be a little bit more careful about, you know, the types or styles of equities that could get hurt if, get hurt if rates rise. So number one, you know, higher dividend yields. You know, those type of investments can get a little bit more hurt by rising yields. Just because, hey, if you're looking for yield, I don't have to buy the dividend stock. I can just go buy a bond. So I think dividend stocks can get a little bit pressured by that. But also, you know, it's a little bit wonky, but sort of higher during, you know, equities, if you will. So I think sort of some of the go-go growth names, some of the growth sectors can get a little bit hurt by rising interest rates. Instead, you'd rather be in the more uh, more sort of cyclical, near-term growth name. So... We'll both, you know, we'll both swap up how much we have in equities and fixed income, and we'll also swap up, you know, what we hold within within each individual bucket. But I think, you know, I think, yeah. you know, what what we do know with interest rates, I think, Jeremy, you know, you've been in the markets for a long time too. You know, they tend to cycle, right? You know, they, they tend to move up and then they move back down. So, you know, when rates are as low as they are today, it seems reasonable to assume, a, I really don't want to lock in these low low rates. And B, it certainly feels like rates are going higher, you know, and that, that's what you know, inflation, infl- the inflation market's telling us. So it seems like a practical and, and smart thing to do, and that's what we've been doing. It's an interesting commentary on the high-duration equities and, and the growth stocks versus the high dividend yields being pressured by rates. Because you think of, you know, and, and they actually counter counterbalance there in terms of that concept of, you know, the high dividend yields are relatively low duration in the sense that you're getting your cash flows today versus like a zero dividend payer is all about the future cash flow, which is the ultimate high duration asset. Um, But the, uh, you know, it is interesting to think of the substitute of the bond substitute being one lower source of demand. Is there a particular segment of high yield stocks that you think are more vulnerable, maybe more expensive valuations that they are, you know, where you think that sort of yield premium was rich today versus, yeah, you know, the, that low duration asset nature of him. Yeah, good point. I think let's just say you simplify it and say, okay, you know, among that universe of stocks that tends to pay a decent dividend yield, you know, often you get some financials. You know, we're reasonably comfortable in the financials now, in part because that yield curve is steepening, right? Rates are going a little bit higher, so that tends to, you know, to be good for the banks. So generally speaking, you know, we're comfortable with the financials, a little less so with some of the more utility-type plays, which seems like they've been bid up, by A, because they're a little bit more defensive, and B, because they're offering that higher yield. So a little bit more cautious on those, uh, you know, sort of the utility-type names, but a little bit more comfortable in financials. If you're looking for yield, you know, I will say, though, to the extent, you know, we're, we're looking for yield, uh, which many of our clients are, again, we like some of the floating rate stuff. Uh, we also like preferreds a lot. You know, it's a reasonably straightforward investment. Again, easy to express the view in a mutual fund or an ETF or even the individual um, individual preferred uh, preferred stocks. And number one, the yields here are reasonably attractive. You know, call it around five percent, which we think is reasonably attractive. And number two, many of the issuers of preferred stocks tend to be the banks. 
you know, right. which we just said a minute ago, should be kind of well positioned, you know, you know, given the steep curve. So for us, that's a, an attractive area if you're looking for income, if you're looking for income. Again, might struggle a little bit as all interest rates start to go higher. So to your point, Jeremy, you kind of get that substitution effect, right? It's, you know, I, I can just, I can, I can go get income elsewhere. But for income, we think that's a good play. I think, you know, for many of them, you know, a lot of the dividend distribution is qualified. You know, so, so we think that's a, sort of an interesting idea for, for income today. For, for people who want a little bit more background on what David just said on preferreds, we actually just had uh, a preferred-focused show um, on, with Gracie Capital, sort of a, a long, short-type strategy. You can look back to the Behind the Market podcast and find uh, that conversation with the, the, the folks from, from Gracie and Mollus Asset Management on preferreds and, and deep dive there. Um, and, and David, when, when you guys think about preferreds, is that coming from a traditional fixed income allocation, given sort of these hybrid securities has some equity-like characteristics, but you know it's giving you better yields than those even high-yield bonds. Um, I mean, how do you guys think about sizing that in portfolios, yeah. where it comes sourced from, where, where is it coming yeah. from? Yeah. What a, what a great question. I, I think, you know, internally we spent probably as much time you know, asking ourselves, how do we classify preferreds? You, know, yeah. you can make an argument, oh, it's equity. Or you could also make a you know, similar intelligent comment, oh, it's preferreds. Uh, pardon me, it's fixed income. So, again, we were a little bit less concerned, you know, what do we call it? Now, maybe to your point, though, is, you know, from where do we source it? We tend to take a little bit, uh, tend to take a little bit from both areas. You know, if we're going to build, say, a, a 4% position in preferreds. We'll take a couple points from equities, and we'll take a couple points from fixed income. Because I think what you do see with, with the preferreds is, say, say this year, you know, they're, they're trading a little bit like fixed income, right? So the preferreds will act a little bit like a bond, you know, in a higher rate environment. Um, but if you think about, you know, when, when, when Corona hit in March, uh, you know, these things got hit not quite as severely as equities, but it can have, you know, some price volatility like equities. I think in some ways it really depends on sort of where you're buying them. So if you're buying up preferreds at, say, full par, say 100%, it's probably not a lot of upside in that name, right? I think at that point, if you're buying a full price, you know, if you're buying a, a preferred at par, say if the market's generally trading at par, that sucker's a bond, right? You're probably not going to get a lot of price, price appreciation from there. But if you think about in March, you know, when, when Corona hit markets, a lot of these preferreds were trading around 90 cents on the dollar. So I think you can make an argument. I'm paying 90 for it. I think it's reasonable to assume this thing will go back to par. So I have some of that price, you know, the equity-like price potential, and I get to clip the coupon. Um, uh, uh, and I get to clip the coupon. So I think a little bit, you know, how you classify it, from where do you source it. I think a little bit of that can depend on, you know, when you're buying it, you know, where, where you are sort of a, as, it, as it relates to the par value. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. We're talking with David Carter, Chief Investment Officer of for, for Lennox Wealth Advisors. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit, David, about your views within, you know, within the U.S. equity market. How do you think about structuring sort of global portfolios? Do, you, do you, your clients tend to focus on the U.S.? Do you focus on the U.S. versus international markets? Any opportunities there? Yeah, great question. We do, um, so as a, as a general rule, we do run or manage uh, global equity portfolios. So think U.S., sort of non-U.S. developed, you know, think Europe, and non-U.S. Uh, emerging. So think emerging markets. And then again, we will sort of cycle those portfolios between you know, how much is U.S., how much is non-U.S. You know, we've, we've generally been leaning heavier towards U.S. allocation because that tends to be where the growth is. You know, looking forward, we're still certainly cautious about Europe. You know, it doesn't seem like it's some progress on vaccination relative to the U.S. It's very, very country dependent. So if I'm not mistaken, I think the U.K. is doing a fine job with vaccination rates, but places like Germany and France are lagging. So it's hard to make this blanket comment of, hey, buy Europe, because, you know, they're doing such a great job vaccinating there. So we're a little cooler, again, on that, on that market call, if you will, as it relates to Europe. Not a lot of growth there. I will say, Jeremy, let it tie it into our earlier conversation. If you're looking for dividend yields, you know, our experience has been generally dividend yields outside the U.S., say in Europe, have been a heck of a lot higher than in the U.S. You know, just, it just approximate numbers. Let's say, you know, a dividend yield in the U.S. is around 2%. You know, if you look at European high dividend names, you're closer to 4%. 
So you, you give up the growth, but it's a great, it's a, it's a, it seems like it's a better place for, for equity, dividend, yield. Sometimes we sort of say, look, Europe isn't a great place for growth, but it's a great place to get some income. So that's how we think about Europe. I think, Jeremy, what we think is a heck of a lot more attractive and, and you know, maybe, more, maybe more attractive than U.S. markets today is emerging markets. And what do we mean in the, what do we mean there? Really China. I mean China of course is a big dog as it relates to emerging markets. And some of that is driven by, you know, Jeremy, the sort of the apparent success they've had in dealing with corona, right? Or dealing with COVID. I think if you look at the chi- the size of the Chinese economy today, they're right back to where they were pre COVID. So they've sort of already recovered. You know, they've made good progress in vaccination the vaccination there. So Sort of say what you want about an authoritarian regime, but it seems to have <laughs> have been effective in, in sort of dealing with Corona and dealing with COVID. I think you see that in other areas in Asia, you know, Taiwan or Singapore. I think you know, there was a fascinating article. I think it was in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago about the colleges in Singapore and and the the rate of of of, of COVID is extraordinarily low because look, people follow the rules. <laughs> they have a mask. They're staying away from groups. So. So, you know, again, to to tie that together, you know, we do see sort of a stronger economic recovery going on now in emerging market nations. So we're doing a little bit more uh, in emerging market equities relative to, say, European equities. No, it's really interesting. We we focused on that on behind the markets all last year, and we had you know shows, and I I honestly didn't hear a lot of this conversation on how well some of Asia managed. Like Taiwan um, was going through the system and and really had like five deaths at the point we were doing our call, and yeah. you know the the now they give up privacy some issues there i mean they have a lot of tracking and people will get phone calls on where they were um you know so there's there's different different things going on there that help them manage through it but uh to your point on the reopening they you know are are, are able to manage through this uh in in a sort of different way than we're managing and it's interesting still the covid factor dominates all sorts of factors in 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 where where people are looking for for opportunities so you still you're, you're liking Asia as, as part of this recovery. Yeah, you know, I, I think you're right. I think, as I said, sort of jokingly, author, you know, say what you want about authoritarianism, but it has sort of worked, you know, in some of those Asian markets, you know, purely as it relates to COVID. And remember, too, if I'm not mistaken, I think some of those countries also had to deal with SARS, you know, an yeah. earlier health crisis. So there's sure. sort of, I wouldn't say are pros at it, but I think, you know, if you, if, you know, if, if, you know, we do think, you know, thinking about who's having success, you know, um, sort of working through COVID. I do think there's a read through, if you will, to markets and the extent Asia's had some success. You know, we think it, we think it makes sense to do a little bit more in those areas. Um, it's funny, you know, it's a day. I think if you asked me, you know, asked us pre-COVID, you know, what do the letters CDC stand for? You know, the Centers for Disease Control. I, was that a high yield bond CDC? What's that? So it's been fascinating to see how you know we're so much more attuned to health data. You know, every day I get an email that tells me what's the vaccination rate in the U.S. What is it in the U.K.? What's it outside the world? What's the seven day um, sort of trailing average of um, of vaccination rates? So we're certainly paying much more close attention to that. It's Seems like across the across the globe, it's moving in the right direction, which is encouraging. Um, but look, you know, you don't know if there's a if there's a glitch somewhere, if there's a hurdle. Um, you know, you don't know if how significant you know this anti-vaccine sort of um, belief is out there. You know, you know, is that a hurdle to getting to, to full immunity or to herd immunity? You just don't know. So I think that there's definitely rational to be optimistic. You know, as we as we said at the top of the show, but you know, it's it's. A, I'm a big Springsteen fan, and he has a wonderful line about, you know, things will knock you down that you don't even see coming. So I think it's great to be optimistic, and there's, re- there's rational reason to be optimistic, but you got you don't know what's around the corner. So you kind of got to be ready to get blindsided. Um, and I think that, that blindside might come from some sort of stumble in vaccination rates. Well, this has been a great start to our show. We're lucky we have David Carter, the Chief Investment Officer for Lennox Wealth Advisor, with us for the whole show. And sort of globally, David, we were talking about Asia and how they managed through the vaccine. I think also one of the interesting questions on China in particular, as we're talking, is 
is the relationship with Washington. Like with the uh, the Trump administration, we had some sort of strained ties. Uh, is part of a thesis on China what's happening in Washington? Any other comments on on Washington's interaction with your market views here? Yeah, good point. It, it's definitely you know sometimes you do need to consider Washington and what's going on uh, you know with Washington and how how it can impact Wall Street. And I think if you're thinking of investing in China, uh, you definitely need to think about sort of the relationship with Washington, obviously, you know, with the Trump administration a little bit more sort of conflict-ridden. And the hope, of course, is, uh, you know, the Biden administration may be a little more, I guess, cooperative, if you will, you know, be a little less restrictive on China's ability to, to, to trade with us. I think, you know, what's important to note, um, you know, I think as it relates to trade policy, you know, if I'm not mistaken, I think that that's something Biden as the president, you know, has, has fairly direct control over. It's not something that has to make its way through Senate or, 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 uh, or Congress, which which now with a majority, it might be easy to do that. But I think, I think our, our point is that if Biden wants to make a change as it relates to trade policy with China, you know, he, he can do that with a stroke of a pen. Though we haven't, to be clear, we really haven't seen any indication that 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 is the plan. I think you know we haven't heard him say, "Oh, we're going to, you know, be more open with China. We're going to, you know, uh, reduce some of the restrictions." We think that's coming, but to be clear, we haven't seen that yet. We've been a little bit surprised by that. So I think it's something to continue watching, and you know, maybe that could be you know the the, the quote unquote, um, you know turbo after effect, if you will, as it relates to EM. I think, you know, if you do get in a, in a, in a week or a month this positive news on trade policy, that could, again, provide another boost for emerging market equities. But I think you're right. It's, it's something, you know, you, you certainly need to consider. It's um, it's a funny time in markets that, you know, wash, what's going on in Washington you know, really is driving Wall Street. So I, I almost spend as much time reading the political news as I do the economic news. Yeah, there's so much of our show. You thought you were talking markets and it became, well, uh, what's happening with the vaccines and the virus? What's happening with fiscal policy in Washington? It's sort of um, the sort of standard what's happening in the companies became a little bit less relevant. You're exactly right. And, then, you know, that's just, you know, as I, as I said earlier, you know, we are closely watching vaccination rates. You know, we get data from the CDC on a daily basis and, you know, you know, in general markets, you know, we spend much more time looking at profit growth and GDP growth and where are interest rates. And, and today, one of the most important data points is where are we, <laughs> you know, is, is the you know, percentage of folks that have been vaccinated. But I think, look, this too shall pass, right? You know, I think, I think you know, things in Washington will settle down once the Biden administration becomes, um, I guess, more ingrained. You know, there'll be fewer surprises there, perhaps. And I do think, you know, we're not astute enough to, to know exactly when, you know, the, the, the vaccination uh, crisis is, is quote-unquote solved. You know, our, our general comment has been, you know, we think it's reasonable to assume you'll be spending Thanksgiving dinner in person, you know, around the table with family and friends. It's coming. We're not going to say if it's June or July or August, but I think it's reasonable to assume certainly in the, in the second half of this year, um, the, the COVID crisis, quote-unquote, will be, will be more in the rearview mirror. And then we can get back to focusing on on the nerdy, dry stuff like profit growth and GDP growth. Yeah, we all look forward to those days. Uh, we, we talked a lot about on the first half, sort of your equities and fixed income sort of worldviews. As you think about rounding out portfolios, how much do you does Lennox uh, and your and your and you look at alternatives in portfolios, and and what are the alternatives that make sense to you as as diversifiers? Yeah, great point. Uh, I think to your point at Lennox, uh, you know, we do run multi-asset class portfolios. So that includes equities, fixed income, and alternatives. And, and for us, alternatives is a real catch-all. You know, it can include everything from a from an options-based strategy to real estate to uh, to commodities, really, you name it. It's very much a catch-all. You know, as, as we look today, you know, where do we think, you know, there are some opportunities within that alternative space, Um you know, we do invest in both liquid and illiquid um, uh, securities. A fancy word of saying, you know, you're buying a mutual fund or you're buying a limited partnership. You know, which one are you doing? And we'll use some mutual funds in certain parts of the, of the alternatives market. Um, you know, very basic. You know, maybe a long short strategy or a very basic uh, sort of quant type strategy uh, that that's really liquid. You know, when we think about how to invest in alternatives, you know, in some ways the, the fork in the road, if you will, is um, you know, we think we can do it in a liquid mutual fund structure 
if the underlying strategy doesn't use a lot of leverage, number one, and number two, if that underlying strategy is in turn investing in a lot of liquid securities. I think, you know, if you try to invest in something like distressed debt, which is not very liquid at all, it's certainly hard to trade in, more, less easy to trade in and out of. We don't think you can do like a distressed debt strategy in a mutual in, in a mutual fund structure. I think you kind of got to match, you know. What's the, what's the liquidity of, of the strategy with the liquidity of um, the investment? I get a mutual fund or an LP. Um, you know, to date, we're looking at a couple different areas. You know, it tends to be a little bit more in the limited partnership side. Um, number one, Asia. You know, we're looking at a, um, a special situations fund, which is kind of a fancy, just a fancy word for saying they will invest in both debt and equity in, very, in various companies throughout Asia. I think there's a couple of interesting things with Asia is that, you know, as we, as we talked about earlier, we do think there's a, there's a robust growth story going on. So we, we think, generally speaking, you know, the, the economic growth is moving in the right direction. And in some ways, the credit markets there are, um, you know, in some ways incredibly deep. So if, you, if you're a, you know, a mid-sized or a larger company, say, in China, and you kind of fit into the box, if you will, uh, to, to apply for a bank loan, you're going to have 10 banks lining up to give you a bank loan, you know, a traditional bank loan in China. But if you're a little bit more unique, if you don't fit into that box for whatever reason, there's, there's just there's very little capital available. So, for example, in the United States, we have a pretty robust high-yield bond market, where, where in China it's much less developed market. So for a country, for a company... That really needs, or most appropriately, you know, should have a high yield bond outstanding. That just can't get access to that. So some of these limited partnership structures, we think, can fill that need. They can fill that gap. So we think there's some opportunity there. Of course, with LPs, I think we all know the problems. Right, it's reasonably illiquid, so you can't get your back, your money back, money back as much as quickly as you might want. On, on a lot of occasions, you know, you do have to be a reasonably large investor to, to invest in these limited partnerships. So there's a couple of hurdles, you know, in, a, in limited partnership investing. Again, we tend to do it, you know, where we, where we think the underlying strategy sort of requires an LP structure. But we'll look at both, you know, LPs or mutual funds. Um, you know, the last thing I'll say is, uh, is you know, we're, we're, we don't have a – we've certainly thought a lot about commercial real estate. Right. You know, do we think that's an opportunity? You know, commercial real estate is something we would, you know, certainly put in that alternatives investment bucket. We've owned commercial real estate in the past, and you know, we have some some in portfolios today. And really, it's the great unknown: is you know, what does the world look like post COVID? You know, are we all back in offices? And if so, or is it four days a week, five days a week? Will we need more space? You know, what does all this mean for office demand? I don't know about you, Jeremy, but I love working from home with Zoom. So yeah. I think, yeah, right? So we're trying to figure out, you know, what, what does a new world look like and what does that mean for office demand? Similarly, what about retail? You know, you, do you really need to go into a store anymore after you've been buying stuff on Amazon and Costco or whatever whatever site you're, you, you know, you're using for the previous nine months? So we, don't, we can't quite get a good read through on, you know, what's office space demand What's retail space demand? Because I think that will, uh, to state the obvious, you know, affect uh, commercial real estate uh, going forward. Yeah, we we our own our own look at that. We've we sort of because of that had reduced some real estate in in models last year. Uh, pers- my personal anecdote is my new broadcasting studio is above my bedroom here at my home <laughs> office, and the uh, you know we've become a remote first organization actually, and we're we're basically moving out of our Park Avenue space in two forty five in in New York uh, yeah. because we we found it has been. Productive, but let me get a quick reset here. We're, we're talking with David Carter, Chief Investment Officer at Lennox Wealth Advisors. For everybody in the cars uh, listening in, uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, and so, David, is there interesting on this this talk on on alternatives? Um, and we just we're touching on real estate in terms of inflation hedges. We talked about rates heading higher. Views of of inflation is is commodities a component of what you're doing there and sort of then the new is, is Bitcoin, the new digital gold in your view, how are, how are you thinking about these alternative hedges on falling dollar risk and, and inflation? Yeah. Great question. I, I think if you, 
I think in the market today, inflation is a real risk, right? So you have to think about, okay, you know, what, what are we doing or what are you doing in portfolios to kind of protect yourself from that, number one, and number two, hey, how can you benefit from it, right? You know, where's the opportunity to make some money? It, you know, as, as we said earlier, you know, in fixed income, you want to be careful. You want to look for floaters. You know, floaters, to, uh, floating rate securities tend to do well when inflation comes back and, inflation and interest rates kick up. So you want some exposure there. You know, investing in commodities themselves is an asset class. We've done it in the past. It's worked well in the past, and it's also worked not so well. You know, commodities can be extraordinarily volatile, right? And number one, number two, you know, it really depends um, sort of what you're buying. I think if you buy a diversified commodity index, you tend to get a ton of oil and gas exposure. So I think you've got to know that going into, I guess, the the fund or the vehicle that you're using. Are you really just buying an oil and oil and natural gas? Um, uh, fund and you have to have a view on that. Number one, number two, that tends to be tends to be uh, you know r- rather volatile. So I think you you got you you really got to think about how am I expressing that view on commodities? You know, do you want to be mostly industrial metals? Well, that's great if you're a big hedge fund and you can go out and buy a bunch of you know copper and tin. But if you're a retail investor, it tends to be a little harder to make those isolated plays. You know. Maybe you do just want energy. Maybe you do just want natural, uh, uh, you know, industrial metals or precious metals. So I think commodities, the, the vehicle matters a lot, and you really got to, in our opinion, you got to peel back the onion and, and know what you're getting. Um, sometimes we'll play commodities in a more diversified um, type strategy. So, for example, within that alternative bucket, you know, we, we do, um, we have done a fair amount in a strategy uh, known as risk parity. You know, it's, it's a fairly common. Um, Really common, I guess, hedge fund strategy, if you will, or alternative strategy, and there's almost always, you know, a big slug of commodities exposure in there. So I think if you want commodity exposure, and we think can make sense if you're worried about higher interest rates, you know, you can do that in a slightly more diversified manner, manner by something like a risk parity strategy. As it relates to Bitcoin, boy, what a wonderful question! You know, you know, we we don't own any Bitcoin in portfolios. You know, we're we're much closer to it today than we were 12 months ago, and really largely because some of the regulatory issues, some of the custody issues, we think we've solved. You know, as it relates to Bitcoin, I think 12 or 18 months ago, it was a bit like the Wild West. You know, who's custodying my investment? You know, how is it safe? You know, when I when I want to go get it tomorrow, can I get it tomorrow? You know, we think some of those issues have been solved. Specifically, you know, if you're investing in a basket of the currencies themselves, themselves, as I'm sure you're well aware, Jeremy, there's several several mutual funds and ETFs out there now that can do that. I think if you want to do Bitcoin, you want to do it in a diversified manner. Probably suggest not buying the currency itself, but rather um, you know doing it doing it through a mutual fund where you, or an ETF. There's a little bit more regulation. There's a little bit more comfort with who's custodying the, the security. You know, what we've been saying to a lot of clients is, look, we think Bitcoin makes sense, it, especially in a period of incredibly low rates. Where, you know, we're quote unquote, um, you know, the value of paper currency. You know, may, may get called into question. In a period where inflation might take off, you know, something like 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 a like a cryptocurrency, you know, could could protect you from that. Really, in many ways, Jeremy, I think you know the, the bigger question is not do I buy it, but it's how much do I yeah. buy? How do I size the position? So, what we've been saying to some clients, you know, who who have expressed a real interest in owning the currency, size it right. I think if you're doing one or two percent of your total portfolio in crypto. I think that's perfectly rational, right? That, that, doesn't, yeah. that doesn't seem uh, doesn't, doesn't seem too crazy. So I think, how do you play it? Make sure it's safe and it's going to be there when you want to get it. You know, it's it's more esoteric, but I think there's also some financial planning and some estate planning issues there. It's you know, technically, in what state you know does the currency exist? So I, there's there's lots of unknowns. There's lots of things that could kind of get you that you don't see coming but um you know we think a, a small allocation can make sense in portfolios just teasing out another conversation we've been doing more bitcoin on the show last week we had ari paul who is sort of a, an asset management firm we talked a lot about bitcoin and crypto with him as well for people who want to search ari paul the behind the markets last week podcast he was very uh you know bullish on sort of the major two what he thinks crypto assets sort of bitcoin ethereum he gave a lot of warning actually beyond those two very worried that there's a lot more kind of scams in some of the, the things beyond that so he was very cautious on things beyond it I, 
I, I mentioned you, you mentioned some ETFs. The, the regulators haven't actually allowed a Bitcoin ETF yet. Um, they've been very uh, sort of frustrating to ETF providers um, who want to launch a Bitcoin product. Um, and so that sort of regulation is interesting. Some of the, the, the baskets that exist in the market today, as another note of caution, can they, 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 they function more like a traditional closed-end strategy. Uh, and I watched a number of these things pretty closely. One of them is well over 100% premium to what its assets are actually worth um, yeah. because yeah. they don't have that in-kind creation redemption. So there's all sorts of other risks where you think you're buying this basket um, and you, you, you have this exposure, but this thing may go down 50% you know, if, if the assets do right. nothing. <laughs> It'd still be at a premium relative to what it it's, it's crazy. I, I think, Jeremy, you, you definitely use the right word there. There's other risks in investing in, in, in crypto well beyond sort of the investment, the, you know, the investment rationale. So you do have to worry about, um, you know, custody issues, regulatory issues. I think in some cases there are even estate planning issues involved. And so I think you really what you – so you kind of got to be right twice. You know, if I'm buying, for example, the S&P 500 tomorrow, well, I kind of just need to be right. Does the, the did the price of the stocks go up? And I know when I want to sell it, you know, it's going to be liquid, and I can I can capture that gain. I think when you're investing in something like crypto, there is that additional layer of risks. Is did I pay too much for it relative to the underlying value? You know, do I kind of get hurt by the lack of liquidity? You know, inside it, and can I get my money back when I want to get my money back? So. There's, there's another layer of risks, in our opinion, you know, for which you need to get compensated. Now, yep. you know, I'm sure like you, Jeremy, you've seen all sorts of forecasts about how high, say, Bitcoin can go, and it, it could happen. You know, I, I, I think, you know, maybe if I take off my hat, you know, as a chief investment officer at managing money with a fiduciary duty for clients, in my personal account, you know, might it make sense and you know, tuck it away on a Roth and, you know, don't look at it for five years? You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not wearing my hat as a CIO, but that might be a more rational place uh, than, across, than across broader portfolios. No, and I think, and there's going to be more and more vehicles that make it easier for CIOs like yourself to think about it. So I think it is going to be an interesting dynamic over time. Um, tell us a little bit, a bit more about. We sort of focus a lot on your market views, but not much on Lennox Wealth Advisors. I mean, tell us a little bit about your client base, how where they're located, uh, just a little bit more about about what you do there for for clients. Sure. You know, uh, so we are Lennox Wealth Advisors. We are a registered investment advisor. So, you know, as you know, commonly referred to as an RIA. Um, so we're not a broker dealer. We're not brokers. We're, we are a registered investment advisor. And we really just do a couple different things. Uh, you know, number one, we manage money uh, for clients. And number two, we provide financial planning for clients. Our clients tend to be people, you know, high net worth uh, individuals, you know, as opposed to institutions. And we do that. Uh, we are based in New York City, um, though, though Jeremy lately I've been based up in Connecticut, and, 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 yep. and no, no, no complaints there. Um, and uh, we're based in New York City, and we also have offices in Chicago and San Francisco. So we have clients across the U.S. So we get a pretty broad, um, pretty broad cross section. And it's always interesting. I travel a fair amount to talk to clients, and you know they're, they're always interested in different things. You know, I think I don't think you can step foot in California without clients within the first minute or two uh, complaining about taxes. You know, I think when um, you put the state tax rate on top of the federal tax rate, you know, you get a lot of complaints slash questions, you know, in California about how much they pay in taxes. So, so we certainly, you know, it's, it's helpful to hear. It's sort of obviously forced us to try to get a little bit more thoughtful, a little bit, a little bit more creative about tax solutions, you know, which I can certainly do. But, Again, most of our clients are people. Um, you know, it's just the, the way the business was born. You know, most of many of our clients work it work in financial services, so that they um, we tend to have a good dialogue with clients. You know, they tend to know markets, they tend to know investing, they tend to you know be attuned to financial planning issues and how can I protect my assets, how can I minimize my tax bills. So, look, it's a lot of fun. You know, it's, it's, it's a great business. I think you know the ultimate test is always you know would you tell your kids. <laughs> You know, to go into this business, and that, that's certainly a sure. You know, we, we, we uh, you know, uh, thankfully we have a, I think a happy client base, and then our, our staff is happy doing what we're doing. So it's been a lot of fun. Any mistakes some of those clients are making, or anything you see happening uh, that you're trying to, to guard against there? 
Yeah, good question. I think a lot, you know, it, it's, it, you might imagine, you know, when COVID hit markets in March, you know, I think, the, you know, the, the, my, the battery in my cell phone, I think, died every day at three o'clock because so many clients were calling, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And in many ways, you know, obviously they're, they're panicking. Some of them are panicking and saying, oh, should I take risk off? Should I sell some stocks in here? This is going to be horrible. How do I change my allocation? And in some ways, they just want to talk. And I think, you know, we spend a lot of our time saying, well, you know, we don't think that makes it, you know, it makes sense. It doesn't make sense to sell equities now or to make big significant changes now, and here's why. So for the vast majority of clients, they said, okay, you know, I feel better now. Okay, I'm not going to change anything. And, and you know, that was generally our advice in March. I, I think we looked like dummies for the next six weeks, but ultimately, I think it, it turned out to be the right advice. Sometimes we see clients make that emotional decision, and they, and they just can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, I think there was a lot of that in March, and I think many of us justifiably, you know, we're very scared about COVID and what does it mean and how is it ever going to get back to normal. But, you know, we drew a lot of parallels with history. You know, there have been similar health, not similar, but there have been other health crises in the past, and this is what happens, and, you know, it will ultimately pass. And, you know, say what you want about Washington, but I, I do think, you know, coming out of uh, COVID or corona, you know, the, Fed, the government did a nice job, you know, on the monetary side, you know, with the Fed and the fiscal stimulus spending, you know, really early, you know, early in April. So our view very much was, you know, stick tight, don't panic, don't make an emotional decision. There's a rational reason this thing might turn around. Washington's doing a good job. So... A lot of it boils down to Jeremy, and again, I'm sure you see it too in your business. It, it, it's folks making emotional decisions, and uh, and I get it. You know what I'll sometimes say to clients is, look, it's a lot easier for me to manage your money than it is for me to manage my own money because I get emotional about it. You know, you kind of you get a little scared or you get a little bit greedy. So sometimes that's the most common mistake we make is you know clients tend to want to go. <laughs> From from speed eleven down to speed two, you know, in one day, and it's more. Let's just let's relax and remember the plan, and let's let's uh, let's certainly try to take advantage of opportunities as they come and go, but let's not make you know significant swings just based on the emotion of the day. Well, that's a very interesting way to close. We've been talking with David Carter, the Chief Investment Officer for Lennox Wealth Advisors. Really great conversation, David. Thank you so much for sharing insights on on what you're doing and, and the portfolios. We're talking Bitcoin. We're going to have a bull bear debate next week. Looking forward to that conversation. Uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. I'd like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. You can check us out on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.